Welcome to Father Figures, a show about fatherhood, uncommon fathers, fathers of all stripes. I'm your host, Stephen Amaya, and I think we have an interesting episode today. But first, a few introductory words. The purpose of this show is to seek out the wisdom that lies in fathering. I think it's important to hear dads talk about the griefs and the joys, the risks and the rewards of becoming and being a dad. And it's, it's not just what they say, but it's the way how they say it. So if you, if you know a dad out there who's embracing fatherhood, please drop a line. Also, I would be remiss if I didn't say something here by way of my credentials briefly, and then I won't bring them up again if I can help it. Besides having had a father myself, I am the father of a daughter who is now in her 30s. She doesn't mind me telling you that she had a stroke when she was born, so she has cerebral palsy and epilepsy. And consequently, I stayed home and was her primary caregiver for 25 years. Those years of epileptic seizures, of surgeries, of special ed, occupational therapy, physical therapy, working on friendships, and struggling with homework and IEPs, those are my credentials. And I didn't do it alone. I have the good fortune of a wife who had a wonderful career from which she's just retired and could provide for our family, a responsibility that lies heavy on any parent. What I hope you'll hear on this show is men and women talking intimately about one of the most formative relationships there is. I don't profess to have all the answers, but I do know some of the questions surrounding what it's like to be and be around an uncommon father. I've got to tell you, finding fathers in the wild to interview can be a challenge. Uh, One needs patience and a bit of a safari mentality. We're not hunting so much as seeking a conversation, where contact requires vulnerability and risk on all sides. But I have to confess, there's also an ever-so-slight sense of trespassing. And I have to admit that I I kind of like that. And uh, in the end, what I hope we come away with is not something captured, but a person seen and heard and maybe even understood. And that's the most you'll hear about me and my metaphors for now. This following interview took place in the home of today's guest, a Vietnam veteran, a father of two, a retired nurse anesthetist, and a community activist who has served in publicly elected roles over many years and has helped to found several nonprofit groups here on the Northwest Coast. Tessa James Scheller, welcome to Father Figures. Hello, Stephen. I'm glad to be here with you. Now, each family has its challenges, and yours had its own special qualities. So uh, let's begin at the beginning. Where, where did your life start out? I was born in St. Paul, Minnesota, and um, my very Catholic parents um, were big on a big family, and so my mother... I uh, had 15 children, and 13 of us survived, and uh, there's a dozen of us left today. I was uh, the third oldest. It seemed to us like we had almost three separate families, the older kids, the middle kids, and then the youngest kids, because I was out of the house, really, as my youngest sister was quite young. And uh, Stephen, it was a four-bedroom house, and my parents had their own bedroom. So there was a lot of bunk beds. What I can recall was uh, playing with my older sister and older brother. And I recall that my sister, older sister, gave me the name Tessa. And then when I was Tessa, I could play in her room, which was a real special deal because she had a nicer room. And uh, I enjoyed being her sister Tessa as we played. And what I also remember was my brother, older brother saying, you know, if you keep that up, you're going to be like a girl. And I 
I couldn't understand, I didn't understand then, and I understand a little better about misogyny now, <laughs> that somehow being a girl was less than. So I was aware of it, but it, it didn't seem to matter when I was at home, in, in my home, with my family. It didn't seem to matter till school. School for us was a parochial place. and In fact, we lived in a very Catholic neighborhood. Uh, we considered ourselves living in a parish rather than a neighborhood. We all considered ourselves from St. Mark's and St. Paul. Yes, uh, all saints. It was a great neighborhood because uh, in those days, there were a lot of moms at home. And with all those big families, there was children everywhere. And so we had lots of um, neighbors and lots of kids available to play with. And we didn't have to leave the block. We would uh, play all kinds of games uh, under the street lights at, in the evening and during the day. And uh, I felt I had a really, really great childhood in the, my, my early childhood before school. And school was a, a, a very parochial school. And uh, it, was, it featured nuns, and the nuns and the brothers, the, the brothers and the priests, these were folks that were, in my family, revered, and they had a, a certain status, and, and they, were, they were not to be messed with. I didn't know for the first year or so that, that um, nuns were actually women. They, they did not seem like people that I could relate to, and they were, they were, they were very strict back in those 50s. Yes, and in school, of course, was regimented. You know, kids were lined up by gender, and they were lined up by by height and things like that. And um, rules were rules, and you did you didn't break rules at um, at the risk of uh, you know corporal punishment that would be illegal today. What comes now, I guess, is what uh, many would call one of the curses of being human: the introduction to puberty. How did you approach these? Uh, incoming changes? What was it like to encounter sexuality and gender and, and bring that into the, the equation of your life? I wished I could have avoided it. I, I had the feelings throughout my life, but I did my best to stuff them. I, I do recall asking my mother why they, why they attached those genitals to me. Why, why did they sew those on me? I, I, I felt they were extra. And uh, I recall thinking that that was not a, a question I would ever ask again because I, I recall a very, I don't remember exactly what she said, but it was a pretty much a, you don't talk that way. That's that's wrong way to talk. So I, I knew it was a taboo subject. The puberty was, was awful. It was like, oh no, this this shouldn't be happening to me. And um, this, it felt very, very foreign, even though it was my body. So I, and I, and I was... Um, I was a big brother to a whole bunch of younger kids in my family, so I, I certainly knew what, what I was in terms of a boy. I changed lots of diapers. Yeah, but I didn't, I didn't even want to be a brother. I really rather would have rather have been a sister, and I liked hanging out with my sisters because they were, they were doing the fun things that I wanted to do, like baking and cooking and, and reading books. And I really didn't want to be out with the boys because they were like pushing each other down and fighting and and playing dumb ball games and things like that. But um, I, I remained very quiet about that, and uh, I, I, I recognized through puberty that that that's when I learned the word cynical. <laughs> I became quite a, uh, quite a cynical 13-year-old. <laughs> yeah. And I just resigned myself that this, this is your tough luck, and you just have to deal with it. 
One of most people's experience in growing up is one of seeing one's father as a role model. How was that for you? He was a, a man's man, and he played football and liked football and all those male things. And uh, he was, I, I've used the term AA kind of dad. He was either absent or if he was present, he was angry. So he was, uh, in my life, he seemed either absent or angry. And he uh, was expected to be the disciplinarian in a very unruly household of uh, 15 people. Tough for him, too, I'm sure. And, and that seemed understandable in those days. Yeah, that was that was de rigueur, you know, that. And I also remember him in my earlier life, earliest part of my life as a fun man. Uh, I think before he was overwhelmed by the family he created, he um, he loved to, um, well, they drank a lot, but then they would play the, he'd play the harmonica and he would sing. He, he had a great voice. He was in a choir. He was in a church choir. So from him, I, I got a love for singing and, and music. And for my mom, I, I, I have a love of reading and literature, and um, I'm grateful for those. I was uncomfortable in my home. I was uncomfortable with myself, and I really couldn't, under, I did not understand the psychology I was dealing with. I wanted to go away. I wanted to escape. I wanted to be free. And in those days, in the early 60s, when I was a young teen, uh, that was the era of hippies and people going off to California with free love. And uh, I heard there was gay people there, too. Oh, my God. So I thought, okay, go to California. So I, uh, in my, in, when I was 15 and 16 years old, I was a, a chronic truant from school and a, and a, and a runaway. And I would uh, run away. I had a girlfriend at the time that um, was ready to be a runaway as well. And we tried to go to California. And I was arrested several times and ended up in juvenile detention. Yeah, and um, uh, the way out was to join the U.S. Army when I was 17 years old, and that was 1967. Of course, went to that was the era of Vietnam, so by 1969 I was in Vietnam uh, as an 18-year-old. And uh, there I knew. I, I met other soldiers who, who knew themselves to be gay. Of course, it was all very hush-hush then, but I, I realized I was equally attracted to, to men as well as women and had uh, some casual affairs. And I, uh, I realized at that point who I was, that I, I worried in my life about becoming like my father. And I, I realized I was actually, a, I felt a lot more like my mom. So I thought, okay, this is something I have to keep on the down low. I have to keep quiet about this. People, people would lose everything if you're discovered. And in fact, when I was in Vietnam, uh, people who did know about me being uh, what they considered gay uh, threatened me, threatened my life. I was actually more afraid of uh, fellow soldiers who might kill me uh, than the Vietnamese because uh, we all had automatic weapons. And um, yeah, friendly fire is not so friendly. <laughs> but I, that was a real, the big secret. And uh, unfortunately, uh, while I was in Vietnam, I learned that I had fathered a son. I had... Uh, I had uh, illegally, not it wasn't a legal marriage, but I got married as an 18-year-old, and uh, I had a son, and I was I was found out that uh, this young person was pregnant when I was in Vietnam, and when I got home, home my son was a few months old, and hello, dad, <laughs> and I'm thinking, oh my God, I don't feel like a dad, I don't feel like a father, I, I don't feel like a man, all these things, you know, the the great manhood of, of I got through a war I must be a man now 
um, a year after I was returned from Vietnam, I, I divorced uh, my then wife. She was, um, because we were intimate, of course, she was aware that, oh my gosh, this, this man is much more of a sissy girl and did not like that and did not like that about me uh, and found it very uncomfortable. And my role as a father was uncomfortable for her because uh, I believe in, in that relationship. I was the more nurturing partner. I was the one that wanted to do the cuddling and the holding and the bedtime stories and that kind of thing. Uh, whereas my uh, ex-wife at the time said, oh my gosh, you should be throwing them around and, and, and roughhousing and doing the throwing a football or some darn thing like that. And I just thought, oh, that's not me. Uh, so I, yeah, the province of caring and loving and nurturing, that, I don't think that's, I think that's genderless. But it has been kind of something that in our lives as as men, men will police that and some women will too. We'll say, oh my gosh, you're, you're, you're such a sissy or you're such a baby or a girl because you seem sensitive. And it's like, oh, even sensitivity is suspect somehow relative to manhood. And it's like, oh no, men are very, very sensitive if we allow our, allow ourselves to be that. I learned quickly how to throw a ball and how to stand and how not to twirl and th- make too many motions with my hands. <laughs> I learned what not to do. The feelings you must have had, it must have been difficult to be called names, yet you're a parent. Responsibilities emerge and remain. You're a father after all. Well, I am very definitely a father. I fathered two children, and uh, my daughter to this day, who and she she won't like me telling her age, so she's in her forties. But she uh, she likes me to be her dad. She wants me to remain her father. She's comfortable with my being a non-binary transgender person, but she um, she recognizes me at my core as as her father still. And sometimes uh, we use the uh, term dadalonia to add the the baloney to the to the dad <laughs> so um i think she's mostly comfortable and we have a very uh, very close relationship she lives in portland and we get together at least weekly scenes my son on the other hand uh he is uh, 52 years old and uh he learned i told him i told him when i when he was 13 i thought Maybe then at that age he would be able to handle it to some degree, but I I didn't want to lie to my kids ever. I told them that I was um, um, bisexual at at that time. I I didn't come all the way out of the closet and say, gosh, not only am I bisexual, but there's this thing called transgender. Well, the truth is the word transgender hadn't even been coined until 1964. But in any case, um, telling him as a 13-year-old may not have been a good idea. I don't know. Um, His his mother... um, did not really like me very much, and that was further ammunition to keep us apart and to to drive a wedge. I, I can't blame her. Uh, I think that's partly cultural, like, oh, my God, I was married to this gay man, you know. Uh, not too many women wanted to say that. Uh, but that made our relationship very difficult. I, I was open about having boyfriends, um, and uh, he did not like any of that. And uh, since he realized that I wasn't going to change. In fact, that uh, I, when I came out again in 2012, he, he uh, has since not uh, spoken to me since then. 
and um, we we are strange times, decades throughout our lives, and I. That's very painful for me, quite honestly. I, uh, it's hurtful. I, I make overtures that are rebuffed, but um, I try and respect his privacy and his family's privacy, and don't don't intrude. Um, I'll always be there, and I'll always love him and care about him, and um, want to know more about him. But he really he really wants nothing to do with me. He's, I, I'm very different than my father, and he's decidedly very different than his father. So uh, <laughs> I try and respect the man he is, and uh, recognize that um, that my overtures are not are not welcome. He is a father, and um, it's not it's uh, it's something that I value that I'm very close to his children. I and they accept me and, and love me and care about me, and uh, I have a good time with my grand granddaughters and grandson. And my great granddaughter and grandsons. <laughs> I have, I have four. I have four grand grandchildren, great grandchildren, and three wow. three grandchildren. And they they seem to accept me just fine. And we get together every year and uh, we spend time together, and uh, enjoy them very very much. And they they seem to get along with me too. Good. Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm very lucky. I feel, yeah. I feel very fortunate. Having lived much like a man, there must be some wisdom you've gained having seen human relationships from essentially different sides. There must be some wisdom that comes from having lived that specific point of view. I have found that um, because I have, in large respect, changed genders, I lived certainly much like a man for the majority of my life until I was 60 years old. And uh, women uh, would see a lot of men, not just me, but a lot of men as Geez, if I give a man even eye contact, if I give a man the time of day, then the the flirting and more um, approaches toward something that I'm not looking for is going to happen. So, and I understand that certainly a lot better after now living for ten years more as a woman and recognizing that yeah, a lot of guys are on the make, a lot of guys are opportunistic. And a lot of guys are fairly aggressive about finding a a pathway toward intimacy. Yeah, who who's the other fathers you're going to hang out with? Yeah, but I think there I think there is I think there is a, a challenge for any of us to be a parent and be able to uh, find a venue to talk about that at work. People are I was I was amazed at how many people at work they're going to be talking about the television programs they, they um, they're going to be talking about the news but and uh, and more often women will here's a, here's a picture of my granddaughter here's a picture of my kids and talk about child rearing but men would as a as a rule not be sharing that and not be willing to say look I'm sensitive and loving and caring toward my children I think it's better now. I, I think it's better over the years, and I've met lots of great fathers, and I, I know quite a number of good fathers around here that maybe don't fit that old-style model of I'm just an AA kind of dad, absent or angry. Uh, dads that are sharing with their children and, and spend time with them, not just throwing a ball. Yeah, and I think part of the courage about that is is the real vulnerability to, to say, yeah, I'm, I'm a caring, sensitive, and and thoughtful dad and my and my kids mean a lot to me not just as look what I did or look what they did or as achievement markers but as uh, as people I I deeply care about and think about and I think there's a lot more of that now 
and the gender spectrum has been a, a wonderful um, education for me that way. I, have, having walked in these shoes now for a decade, it is different. Um, people relate to relate to me different. That I'm in a group of women, I'm not a threat. Um, in a group of men, I'm I'm not a threat at all. <laughs> that um, that people are willing to accept us as just who we are, and that that's okay now. And uh, I think what I found for myself was um, the certainty that I could survive just about anything. Uh, I could survive what felt like neglect. I could survive being homeless. I could survive being incarcerated. I could survive warfare. I could survive being a transgender person hidden away uh, in, in a very tough male world. Uh, and then I could that I could adapt, and I and I think that's the key now for survival for for basically all of us is to be adaptable, and to, to think outside of our usual boxes, and that was the hard part for me. I didn't I didn't fit in the mailbox. I knew that, but I really didn't fit in the a woman's box entirely either. I, I'm what people think of as a non-binary uh, transgender person, so I don't think of myself as fully female or fully male. So. It, a sense of belonging is really critical for people and uh, for that sense of community that comes with it or a sense of being part of, of and belonging to a group that makes sense and is, has some level of, of acceptance and esteem. I learned early on that I was estranged from my family as a, as a teenager uh, and because my parents eventually knew and understood that I was probably gay or something we, we didn't talk about it we didn't literally did not use any language but it was suggested that geez i'd be i'd be a great priest oh my gosh can you imagine not at all but um that that was that was one of the solutions but i but i was basically estranged i was i was suspect around the younger kids because i was this probably gay person and um um i'm close with my family now but it, it took me until my parents had been deceased before I was able to fully come out and say, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm also transgender, and to live my life fully. It was also not until I had retired, because at any point I could have lost my job back in those days because I was transgender. So there was a lot of policing in my life, but I realized I could adapt. I could I could find my way through. And that's funny, too, because here we had the, the Kinsey people back in the 40s and 50s, understanding with their... Um, with their science that, hey, there's been a lot of people who've had uh, what would call today would be bisexual experiences. But that did not say they were gay. It did not say that they were um, transgender. But um, we don't always represent the truth about our intimate lives. Well, and that's one of the reasons I am uh, one of the founders of our local Q Center, our Lower Columbia Q Center, was uh, especially when I first started transitioning in 2012, uh, I felt so, again, estranged from community and culture here locally and, and feared that, that I would be uh, left out in the cold again. And I, I wanted a place, not just for me, of course, but a place for all of us to be able to, to come together and share and uh, celebrate and have that sense of belonging and community. Part of being who we are means that we have friends and, and neighbors, in my case, that I feel really... Um, I feel honored that they trust me to watch their kids uh, as a babysitter or somebody that will watch their kids overnight, and they trust me, and they can trust me, and their kids are safe with me. And uh, I, I have 
a lot of gratitude for that ability to be able to interact with young people still. Yeah, it's, it's a highlight of my life. When I first met Tessa, I was curious about what the Venn diagram of woman and father might look like. How could the circle of woman and the circle of father possibly overlap? Well, it doesn't take long to see that being a good father is simply being a good parent. But being a good parent is one of the least simple things to be in the world. What seems important are the genderless qualities of caring, love, and respect. And there are other qualities we associate with fatherhood, like strength and courage, but these two are genderless. Could it be true that any positive quality of fathering is possible delivered from a woman? When I asked her about what she's glad she's learned over the years, she talked about survivability. And I was reminded of a piece from the poet E.E. E. Cummings, which goes, quote, To be nobody but yourself in a world which is doing its best, night and day, to make you everybody else, means to fight the hardest battle which any human being can fight and never stop fighting. End quote. So here we have a struggle between individuality and what seems like belonging. Or is it? Belonging is important because as fathers it can be difficult to find comfort or peace or even know how to do things right if we don't know or can't figure out where we really belong. We can get a sense of belonging because of the jobs we do, if we're fortunate enough to have one or two, and that can be very satisfying, if we can use that word. But I've known quite a few uncomfortable fathers, and you may have too. The gig is not the guy. What is our responsibility to convey to our sons and daughters? It's common and correct to learn from our fathers, and we do, and what we learn as boys sticks with us. One hopes we learn carefully. Uh, are we talking about virility? Popeye and his spinach? Uh, you know, the macho man is not very far from anger and absence, the AA father we heard Tessa talk about. What fathers can easily succumb to is isolation, whether it's a dad who comes home tired and needs a break, or a stay-at-home dad who feels stuck on an island. We just spoke with someone who knows a lot about the sense of belonging and the absence of the sense of belonging. Tessa also talked about that feeling of being part of a larger community that works together, that sense of belonging and respect and understanding that comes with such time well spent. When you fall outside of the norm, outside the mass of the bell curve, you can begin to feel as if you are somehow broken. But there's nothing broken in someone who wants and needs and has the right to express themselves, not only in their actions, but in their being as well. The question we're drawn to is how could such a person be a model? Well, then we may need to ask, what are the elements that gender imparts? What are the identifiable benefits? What traditions of manhood are we extending in fatherhood? How many of us are proud models ourselves? There's probably value in being honest about that. It's a simple fact that there are people in this ever-changing world who want to be the arbiters of where other people belong, who seem certain of a framework of how things should be. It's natural to seek order in a disorderly world, but, but sometimes it's not about misunderstanding other people. For some people, it's about disunderstanding them with a pointed and harmful outlook. Some folks seem to live for conflict. What are the responsibilities of a community when such arbiters arise? That's a whole other episode. Putting this episode together took me through some new levels of understanding, opening a few new doors for me, and I hope it did the same for you too, or at least left them ajar enough to look in and see if there's something from which to learn. That 
and all the things I just said are what the show is all about. The stories, the griefs, the joys, the risks, and the rewards. And next time, now that all that exposition is out of the way, there will be less of me as well. <laughs> I want to thank Tessa James Scheller for being a guest on the show. Our music is by C.C. Blanca. Thanks for listening. And if you have any questions or comments, or if you know any uncommon fathers, drop me a line at Radio Ranchero at gmail.com. That's Radio Ranchero at gmail.com. My name is Stephen Amaya, and we'll see you next time on Father Figures. Thank you.